0: We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural and racial equity. Today, my guests, I'm welcoming back Jennifer Lohman of the St. Louis Area Voter Protection Coalition and Dr. Gina McClendon, the Director of Voter Access and Engagement and the Financial Capability and Asset Building Initiatives at the Center for Social Development in the Brown School at Washington University. And today, we're going to talk again about voting in Missouri. So you guys have an event coming up on September 22nd. Tell me what that is and, and where it's going to be and, and what's gonna be happening. So this is the
1: John Lewis Good Trouble Voter Awareness March, which is Tuesday, September the 22nd at 11 a.m. We are going to be just on the, the west side of Dred Scott, um, of the Dred Scott, Scott Courthouse um, in Keener Plaza. From there, we'll have a we'll have a short program where we have different people that are going to talk about voting, the importance of voting, you know, just a few minutes, and then after about an hour or so, we're going to literally march and walk down to the Board of Elections office on Tucker in St. Louis City. And um, people will either register to vote or they can vote absentee in person while they're there. Um, but the the big issue around this is just the the voter awareness you know getting people excited about voting the importance of it um we'll talk about you know protecting yourself if you go vote in person but the main thing is get registered find out where you're supposed to vote if you need to um, vote absentee this particular march is in conjunction with um with with my center with St. Louis Area Voter Protection Coalition with the St. Louis Area Voting Initiative and a national partner, which is the Transformative Justice Coalition. And um, this particular idea came from them and they're asking different cities to do this. So there are a number of cities, other cities that are going to be doing a march um, as well. And so um, they'll be on different dates so Chicago, New York, Memphis, New Orleans, there are a bunch of them that are planning these marches. So if, you know, if people can participate, we'd love to have you. We're also looking for donations for
0: water and snacks and things like that, if people are so inclined. Uh, one of the things I wanted to start with, what are some of the things we learned from the August primary elections in Missouri? What went right? What went wrong? What do we need to look for improvement on?
2: One of the big things that happened in August was the vast increase in absentee and mail-in voting, particularly in St. Louis County and city. And along with that came some some issues that uh, really need to be dealt with going forward into November. Number one. There were um, a lot of ballots rejected in June and August because they arrived after the deadline. Missouri has a received by deadline for um, all ballots, absentee by mail and mail-in ballots. So if they're not there by 7 p.m. on election day, they don't count no matter what the reason for the delay. So there were some ballots that were not counted because they arrived after 7 p.m. on election day and some had been mailed um, a, a week or more prior to the election. Issue number two is the number of ballots that are rejected because people have failed to um, fill out the ballot envelope correctly. It's really important when you're voting by mail in either absentee by mail or as a mail-in ballot that you need to fill out everything on the back of the envelope correctly, which means filling out the statement that's on the back of the envelope, signing the ballot in front of a notary if it's required, and verifying your address where indicated. Failure to do those things can result in your ballot being rejected. And you know, if you've gone to the trouble of applying for the ballot, filling it out and mailing it back, you certainly don't want any of those things to stand in the way of your ballot counting. You aren't necessarily going to get a notification that your ballot was rejected. There's nothing in the law that requires uh, election authorities to notify people that their ballot was rejected. So it's important for voters, not only to fill everything out correctly, but to follow up afterward. And to ask the election authority if their ballot was received. Once a ballot is marked received, it generally means that everything was fine on the outside, and it, it goes into the queue to be counted. Um, and if your ballot wasn't received, you still have options. You know, there are actually several things that you can do to um, cast a new ballot or fix the ballot that was deficient in some way. But you know, these are things that we really need to educate the public about because it's so so important um, in a situation where much larger percentages of the population are voting by mail.
0: So just to follow up on that real quick, how does one check um, to see if their ballot has been received?
2: Well, some jurisdictions have ballot tracking. And that should tell you if the ballot has been received and accepted, but I, I don't want to speak to that with any kind of authority because I, you know, I'm not 100% sure. What people can obviously always do is call their election authority, you know, the, the county or the city or wherever they live, just call them and ask if their ballot has been received.
1: So out of 73 of the 116 counties, Um, there were 200,535 requests for ballots. And out of that, um, 176,000, almost 177 were passed with about 4,500 that were rejected. The 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 number one reason for rejection was that they were received after the polls closed. You, You know, to what extent do the laws need to change around that? You know, because if the ballot isn't received by seven o'clock on election day, they're rejected. The other, the next highest one is no signature. So on the back of the ballot, back of the envelope, people have to sign. Um, and there, there's some, uh, another high one was um, notary, people not having their ballots notarized. So those are all the things that, that Jennifer just talked about that are super important for people to remember to do. You know, and, and, get it in the mail right away. Or and just if it's a, not a mail-in ballot, if it's an absentee, then drop it off. Mm-hmm.
2: But to highlight one other thing from those statistics, Gina, is the gap between the number of, of valid absentee ballot requests made and the number of ballots that actually come back. So, you know, there's one bucket of things that are the ballots that come back and are rejected. But then the other concern, and one that really we don't have answers for completely, are the number of ballots that simply don't come back. And in states where they have vote by mail and they simply send ballots to every registered voter and a a percentage don't come back, well, you know, that's to be expected because in any election there's only a certain percentage of turnout. But in a state like Missouri, where you have to affirmatively request that ballot, the fact that it doesn't come back, you have to ask why. If you've gone to the trouble of applying for a ballot and you don't send it back, why? In the June election, there were good reasons that might've happened, including the fact that the Metro um, sewer district um, proposition was dropped at the last minute. So people who for whom that might have been the only issue, obviously they aren't gonna bother sending that ballot back. But there were also that, uh, b- ballots that didn't come back in August. Um, and if you're gonna go to the trouble of requesting a ballot, and you're not sending it back, what's happening there? Are you not receiving the ballot? Is your ballot just getting lost in the mail on the way back? You know, what, what, what is the, the issue there? And there's no way for us to tell that. And that is really problematic when it represents a very statistically significant percentage of ballots um, that, that could have been cast.
0: Okay. And, and Gina, to you, uh, was there anything that you noticed even from the, the physical vote, voting in person? Uh, any irregularities? Any, any places that had problems? Uh, well, a couple of things I can think of in particular. One is
1: there was, there was one polling place that didn't open on time. So here's what we're up against. That wasn't an issue for the election authority. It was an issue for the building. The person who was supposed to open the building didn't arrive on time. And so as a result of that, people were standing in line, they were waiting. And um, so the election judges that were there on site did the best they could. And so they were allowing people, they were able to check people in and they were allowing people to vote. But you know, what, what were they to do? They didn't want people to leave because they know if people leave, the chances are that they're not gonna come back. So they did the best they can. So all systems have to work in, in conjunction. And if it doesn't, then things will have a tendency to fall apart. Um, The other thing that that I saw, was over at a poll place in North County. Some of the poll people, election judges, still don't understand what to do with people when um, they've moved. So they're still giving people bad, some will give them bad information about what happens if you move, where should you go and vote? And the answer is, if you move, you look up your new you're uh, using your new address, you look up where you're supposed to vote. You go there and you ask for a change of address form, which is like an affidavit, and they are supposed to allow you to vote. Um, another place I was at, um, there, was, there was a lot of electioneering going on. And that was a, a, a key thing that we saw in the research is that you know people are passing out sample ballots, um, it's COVID, everyone's all, kind of all on top of each other. Um, I saw issues where curbside voting, those signs weren't out front. So they're different things. So, so the city may have a, uh, a thing where they set up something outside with a wireless doorbell. And then in some instances, some counties will use um, a, a um, they will call inside. But basically when someone pulls up who can't, who isn't mobile, has an opportunity to vote and the, and so while it's a great thing, it's also a problem because they have to wait in line just like everybody else. So it's not a fast transition when you pull up, you know, you may have to wait for some time before someone comes out. And so I think a lot of people don't recognize
0: that. So let's go through some of the dates since we're already on, uh, absentee ballots and, and mail-in ballots. What, what are our deadlines for requesting and, uh, returning those particular ballots. Now, so, I yeah. mean,
2: <laughs> in, in theory, you know, you can request the ballot up to October 21st. That would be absolute foolishness. Um, request them now. The sooner you request them, the sooner you receive the ballot, you need to be in the queue to have the, your ballot request fulfilled. Um, if you request it closer to the deadline, I don't see how there's physically any way for you to have the request approved, get the ballot in the mail and get it sent back in time. It's just not going to happen. So now is the deadline.
1: You know, in-person absentee voting starts September 22nd all the way through uh, November 2nd Mm
0: -hmm.
1: at five or six o'clock, something like that. So St. Louis city and County have satellite places. So St. Louis city has added in, they have four libraries that where people can go to to vote in person. And so when you go and vote in person, it doesn't require you to do an application process. You just go and they ask you why aren't you going to be available to to vote on November 3rd and you give them that reason. So it may be COVID, it may be you're going to be out the jurisdiction, whatever it may be, and then you can vote right on the spot. So um, the city has added the Central Library, Shafley Library, the Julia Davis Library, and Booter. So that co- geographically, that covers uh, uh, St. Louis City. And then in the county, they have um, the mid-county library, the one that's in Clayton. They have the North County Recreation Complex, and then the South County Government Center and West County Government Center, and of course, their office. So... Um, If I'm not mistaken, I think they are going to be there on at least two of the Saturdays um, in October that people can go and the hours will be from nine to one, but the other hours are um, on Monday through Friday are 8am to 430.
2: So we should note that the, ab- that the satellite locations don't open until later. So while you can go to the election board next Tuesday and cast your absentee ballot in person, the, um, the satellite locations are opening later. I think the cities open on October 12th and the counties open on October 22nd.
0: And something I saw with the city, since I'm a city resident, is that the, the library days of operation will be, I think, Monday through Friday, but each day is a Different starting and stop time to accommodate uh, people needing to get there at different times of day. So I think it is important to to look at uh, Monday is going to look different than Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, there are early days and then there are late days that they'll be you know open till seven. But on those days they don't open as early uh, in the morning. So please uh, check with your local library if you're in the city if if you're going to vote that way. That's a, that's a great option. So let's talk about our Missouri's two different ways of not voting in person, Um, the absent requesting an absentee ballot versus a a mail-in ballot. Uh, This has been a big issue this summer and it's continuing to be. The good thing is I think that a lot of people have been talking about it, but it doesn't hurt to mention one more time, what what are the differences and, and how do they need to be handled differently?
2: So the absentee ballots by mail are something that you have to have an excuse to request. And there are seven different excuses that you can give for getting an absentee by mail ballot. Two of them are health related. And if you use one of the two health related excuses, you don't have to have your absentee ballot envelope notarized. The other difference between the absentee ballot and the no excuse mail-in ballot is that the absentee ballot can be requested by email or fax. And when you get the ballot and fill it out, that can be returned by you in person to the election board. So you bypass mailing it back or even a close family member can return it for you. So that's really important to know. The other ballot is the no excuse mail-in ballot. And it is much more restrictive. You don't need an excuse to get it but you can only apply for it by taking an application in person to the election board or by uh, mailing an application in. And then once you get the ballot, every mail-in ballot needs to be notarized and you can only send it back by US mail. So it's, it's very restrictive in what it can do. And one of my concerns is that that difference isn't always made clear on election authority websites and um, one concern to me is in the city they they treat those things differently which they are but they also um, have two separate applications and then two separate ballot envelopes so if you go to the website and you see mail and you're like oh well obviously i wanted to vote by mail so i'm going to pick this then you may be stuck with the type of ballot that you didn't intend to request and you know unlike the jurisdictions that have the combined affidavit on the back of the ballot, the cities are separate. So you can't kind of change your mind about your reason if something changes in your in your life um, before you you send it back. So so people just need to be very very cognizant of those differences.
0: Uh, Another deadline that's coming up is registration uh, to to vote. Uh, What are our deadlines on that? October 7th. That's the last day to register to vote. Libraries are hard to get to these days with, with COVID in place. What, what's the recommendation for registering to vote?
2: Well, you can register to vote online if you have a touchscreen device at the Secretary of State's website. And, and one thing that I really wanna highlight for people is that in Missouri, if you move within your election jurisdiction, like the city or the county, if you move within those, those boundaries, you can do uh, the change of address that, that Gina alluded to up to and including election day. However, if you have moved from the city to the county, or vice versa, or between counties in Missouri, you are no longer registered to vote in the state of Missouri. You have to re-register before the deadline in order to be eligible. So that is incredibly important. Make sure you're registered at your current address. And if you have moved you know, across jurisdictional lines, you have to re-register.
1: And the, the other thing I wanna add too is Because of the National Voter Registration Act, where if you, um, once you apply for a driver's license or update your driver's license, that your address is supposed to automatically update, your voter registration should update, people are beginning to receive notices telling them that they may not be eligible to vote because they've changed. But what the notice doesn't say is, it's not real explicit about what the rules are. So the assumption is that you're supposed to know that. So so two of my friends uh, have gotten these things where they were registered to vote in the county, now live in the city. They changed their address on their driver's license and they're getting these notices telling them that they're not registered to vote. But what the city is, is doing is sending them a application with an envelope with the address on it so that they can mail it in. And so my concern is that people are not going to know exactly what that means or, or understand it if you don't have some knowledge uh, about uh, applying to, to vote. So, um, but yeah, so that's something for people to look out for.
2: And, and it's important when they go to update their address at the driver's li- I mean, at the DMV, you do have to make it clear that you want a voter registration update, too. And, you know, that is kind of submitted uh, separately, but concurrently with your, with your change of address for your driver's license. One issue, though, um, that was, that came up in August was that in the county, they had something like 250 provisional ballots cast. Um, For various reasons, and a bunch of them ended up being validated because folks who weren't on the voter rolls, uh, it turned out that they had, in fact, filled out voter registration forms at the DMV that were never sent along to the election board. So they were never processed by the election board, but because they were filled out and submitted at the DMV prior to the uh, voter registration deadline, they were able to go back and process those registrations and validate those provisional ballots. But you know, it's like you, the person you need to count on for voting is yourself to always check your registration, check your polling place, check on your ballot, because ultimately you know that's, that is going to be something that the voter needs to take control of in order to make sure that they cast a valid
0: vote. And of course, once again, to check on your registration, go to the Secretary of State's uh, website, uh, the Missouri Secretary of State's website and type in your address and uh, double check it there.
2: But the best place to check your voter registration is your local election authority. The Secretary of State's website is very case sensitive and I don't know that they update, you know, their records quite as frequently as your local election authority would. So honestly, that your local election authority making that phone call is probably, you know, way more accurate and up to date.
0: And when you say case sensitive, you're talking about typing in like mm-hmm. the street name. I, I've yes. run into that when, when using that state website. If you don't get the, the name of the street mm-hmm. exactly right, or if you put street and you weren't supposed to, then it, it can really throw things off. And that could be a big deal on election
1: day. If everybody, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of people checking, you know, their voter registration, the whole system just slows down. And so it, it's not very good.
0: Now, one thing uh, you sort of reminded me of, uh, Jennifer, when you were giving that last description, was in in August. Wasn't it the county that allowed folks? If you're registered within the county, you could vote at any precinct. Was that correct? And will that be in place for the November election?
2: Yes, um, in in Missouri, you know, you have to be assigned to a precinct. Um, when, as, as a voter, which basically means that you vote on the issues that affect the place exactly where you live. But because the, the county has print-on-demand ballots, they can print you a precinct-specific ballot tailored to exactly where you live, regardless of where you are. So you can go to any county polling site and get the same ballot um, that you would anywhere else, which is great because then you can go, if some place is crowded, You can try another polling location that's not too far away. You know, just, but just so people aren't confused, that's only St. Louis County, the city, you still have to go to your regular polling place.
0: And let's, since we're on election day and and voting in person, um, let's remind folks, what do you need to bring with you when you show up um, at, at a polling place? Well, clearly
1: you want to make sure that you have the appropriate PPE, so your mask. Um, if you're so inclined, um, gloves, hand sanitizer. Now, it's my understanding that in St. Louis City, and I'm not sure about the county, that they intend to have those sorts of things as people enter and as they leave. Um, The other thing I would encourage people is to make sure you're hydrated, make sure that um, you have a chair if you're not able to stand for long periods of time, um, that you bring snacks, you bring water, um, that depending on the weather, you know, last November, 2018, it was like zero outside. It was very cold. So, but you know, St. Louis, it could be very hot. So just make sure that you have an umbrella if you need one, those sorts of things, because they will be standing in line for a long time.
2: You wanna bring, um, you know, some form of ID that that you can use to vote. And that does not have to be a photo ID. There are a whole bunch of different acceptable options for an ID ranging from a driver's license to um, a recent utility bill with your name and address on it. So just make sure that you have some form of ID. But like Gina said, you know, in these situations, everybody kind of knows to bring that form of ID. But you also need to think ahead to be prepared for the specific conditions that you might encounter in this kind of weird time of of voting in a pandemic and, you know, reduced numbers of polling places. I think the city has close to the same number of polling places, but the county is down to almost half their regular number of polling places.
0: And is that reduction in number because of being unable to recruit officials or, or what's happening there?
2: there are two things at work. One is, you know, obviously there are some polling sites that can no longer be used as polling sites because, for example, they're in senior living residences or something like that. So that's just not safe during the pandemic to do that. But also, yeah, it's really about recruiting poll workers. And, you know, there are many fewer poll workers. Poll workers tend to be older folks and who are the most at risk for COVID. So it stands to reason that they are not as eager to to work the the polls this year, so it's really incumbent on younger folks to sign up, and I think Gina has some, uh, some sign-up information about how people can become poll workers, and you know, there's lots of opportunities.
1: Yes, we, we are um, at the Brown School. The, our dean uh, gave us an opportunity to invite faculty, students, and staff and alumni to, um, to sign up to become poll workers or election protection volunteers. And so that went out the other day. We've got about 35 people have signed up. But part of the issue for the election authorities is that because Missouri has this two-party system, they rarely have enough of one or the other, enough Democrats or enough Republicans, depending on where you are. So for this area, St. Louis City, St. Louis City in particular, they, uh, are, they really need Republican people to, to step up and become poll workers. Now that situation may be different South or, you know, in, in, in some other County, green County something like that. But here they definitely need that. And they need a commitment for people to do this all day. So we're talking about a 15 hour day.
0: And, and do you have to live in that precinct or jurisdiction to be a poll worker there? No, you do not. You do have
1: to be a registered voter, but you don't have to live in that particular um, precinct to help. They also need people to help count or help uh, do the um, absentee ballots as well. And that's one thing that, that people don't necessarily talk about. We, you know, we have a tendency to focus just on poll workers on Election Day, but they also need people to count and to open up those ballots. And that is a 2 Party team so there's a Republican and a Democrat that are looking at a stack of ballots that have been mailed in and they both have to agree you know on whatever you know all the different things that, that those ballots need to have in order to uh, be counted so they need those folks as well
2: yeah and and the door greeters. Um, you know, who can who can be, you know, out of state students um, can work as door greeters, even if they're not eligible to be election judges and high school students. There's a special program in the city and county where high school students can be poll workers, even if they're not old enough to be registered voters. So that's uh, that's a great way to get some extra help.
1: Yeah, actually, it's in the statute that uh, that high school kids can be in that poll polling place on Election Day to help, which is a uh, which is a good thing. They also need technical support, so people to go early and set the machines up and to, to break them down or to be there if there are any, to troubleshoot any problems, things like that. Now, that group of people don't necessarily, I, I don't think there's a, 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 a two-party system for them, but um, they need those folks as well.
0: You had mentioned that uh, you're also looking for uh, uh, poll watchers or poll monitors or or describe that program for me.
2: Yeah, we do. We have um, several different opportunities for volunteers ranging from attorneys to help answer the 866-HOUR-VOTE hotline to folks who can be poll monitors, they can be contactless poll monitors where they're assigned to a single polling place to kind of keep an eye on things and, and make sure voters know about the hotline number. We have roving poll monitors who go to a series of assigned polling places just to check things out, see how long the lines are, see if there's any kind of intimidating presence there, just you know, fill out a, a report on each polling place and then alert to any problems so we can send somebody there. And um, we also have the need for people to place election protection signs at polling places. And finally, we have a need for social media monitors. And the social media monitors. Program will start really soon because it'll be ongoing up to Election Day. And it has two important functions. And one is to find voters who are online saying, oh my gosh, I've got this problem and I don't know what to do. And then the social media monitor can give correct information and point them to the voter protection hotline. But also, the social media monitors are out there to um, track disinformation and misinformation um, and report it to uh, organizations that are de- currently specializing in dealing with that.
0: Okay, good. I wanna to turn to a couple of u- uh, unique circumstances that people maybe have questions on. Um, we've talked about this before in our previous broadcast, but once again, uh, w- what are the rules on registration if a person um, uh, is, is not now incarcerated, but was incarcerated, where, where can they re- when can they register again?
1: Well, they can register, ex-felons can register at any point where they have completed probation, parole, are no longer on uh, papers they can do that they if they haven 't been adjudicated so let 's say they 've been arrested they're they 're in jail but but they haven 't been convicted of anything they still have a right to vote so as long as they you know don 't aren 't on paper probation and parole, they can apply
0: to vote and then a, a, a situation that somebody asked me about not so long ago is. What happens if someone doesn't have a a permanent residence or they're unhoused? Uh, Can they register to vote and can they vote?
2: Um, Everybody has the right to vote if you are an eligible voter. It is a little trickier for people who are unhoused. The county has specifically set forth a plan for this. I haven't heard back from the city about the plan, but generally for voters, it's important for them to have a physical address um, in some sense, because that's where they live. And like I said earlier about precinct-specific voting, you know, they have to live and, and, and vote on issues that affect where they live. Um, but, you know, with the unhoused, that's not going to be an actual street address. So pretty much for, for the unhoused, there's one important hurdle for them is to have a place to get mail consistently. So any, if any organization wants to set up a, a way for the unhoused to get mail, then the House can register to vote by using that as their mailing address on the application. And then for the physical address on the application, since they don't have a street address, they can go down on the application where they have like the rural location description, which is often used out in the country where people actually don't have addresses, you know, it's just, you know, more of a location, and use that same thing uh, to describe where they usually stay. So if they're staying at the, you know, at a park often that is the intersection of two streets, they can just describe that location in the rural um, location description. And that is their physical address for the purposes of voting. But I, I think, and that's, you know, and that can definitely be done. I think the biggest hurdle is just finding a place for them to get mail consistently. Also, it, you know, if they are in a shelter, they can use the shelter address and, and uh, you know, vote there, both as their mailing and physical address. But we know that that's all often a challenge and not everybody can get in, there are, just aren't enough beds and not everybody is eligible to be in, in um, the shelters that are currently in existence. So it's, it's something that's important. And I, I really encourage anyone who's involved in that area to organize uh, quickly and and try to find a way to help these folks get registered primarily by providing a place to get mail
0: and uh, on election day uh, we mentioned we touched on this a little bit about the curbside voting what are accommodations for disabilities Uh, specifically that uh, is for mobility uh, but are there other options and two there are things like uh, blindness or having uh, reading disabilities or things along those lines what what other sort of uh, protections are in place for, for those folks.
2: So, so voters have the right to have assistance from the person of their choice. And that's always the case. You know Whether you have a disability or not, any voter can have assistance from the person of their choice as long as it's not their employer or union representative. Um, that said, you know, every county uh, has its own you know, technology, its own voting systems, but everybody should have voting systems that are um, accessible to the disabled that can help folks um, who can't write. For example, there should be machine options um, for a, a touch screen for people who can't write on a paper ballot. There should be you know, audio options for, for people who can't see, um, but it's going to vary. So just people should just know that they have the right to assistance and there definitely should be, you know, accommodations made for various disabilities. Um, But I just, but I can't tell you specifically exactly what that's going to be in every location.
0: Am I correct in remembering that on August 4th, the county decided to go paper only? Is that Mm -hmm. correct?
2: They they did go paper only, but I believe they still have to have a machine for people who are not able to use the paper ballot. Okay.
0: And and when you say assistance of uh, an assistant of your choice. This this means like, say, if a person is a senior citizen, if they bring a, a, a an adult child with them to help them get to where they need to go and do what they need to do that. That is what you're talking about.
2: Yes. I mean, so the person can actually direct their assistant to mark the ballot. So, for example, if you're an older person and you want to use a paper ballot, but, you know, maybe your hands are shaky and you're worried about filling in the dots within the lines, then, yes, you can bring a person and direct them to, uh, you know, fill in those those dots for you. So, yeah, that's that's really basically how it is. And that person, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a registered voter or an adult or, you know, anything. It can just be the assistant of your choice.
0: I'm gonna to turn to a couple other issues that have popped up over the last couple of months. Uh, one is that the president of the United States has stated that, um, that so if it hasn't been counting, meaning your absentee ballot, um, if it doesn't show up, go and vote. And then if your mail-in ballot arrives after you vote, which it shouldn't, but possibly it could perhaps, the ballot will not be used or counted in that your vote has already been cast or tabulated. So this is a way you guarantee that you have your vote count. Where does this come from? Is there any truth to this? And, and, and where, where's this this add on on information versus di- disinformation?
2: Okay, so so what the president told people was to test these systems by casting two votes. That's very different from what you're talking about. He's a, he's basically asking people to commit a crime. Um, the truth is that it, you do have options if you're absentee or mail-in ballot doesn't arrive, or um, has has some other defect to it, and there is no way that someone can cast two votes. It's like your voter file is like a, was like a parking lot with one spot for each election, and as soon as a valid vote is parked there, and that would be recorded instantaneously as soon as the vote is recorded, once there's a vote parked there, that voter can't vote again in that election, obviously. So let's say um, you call and your absentee ballot hasn't arrived and it's the day before election day. So you're like, oh my God, run in there on election day and you need to vote in person. Well, so what they would do is they would first check to make sure that your absentee ballot hasn't showed up in the, you know, previous few hours. And if it hasn't, then you would fill out an affidavit. Um, a lost ballot affidavit saying, hey, you know, my ballot's lost. I need to cast a new ballot. And and in doing so, you're expressly renouncing the previous ballot and and acknowledging that, of course, that's not going to count. You're here to just make sure you cast one valid vote. And that's perfectly fine. I mean, people do it all the time. Uh, You know, it has to happen because things do get lost in the mail. You know, your dog could eat it. It could get damaged. There's all kinds of reasons why the ballot might not make it back. What concerns me about what the president said is that, you know, people are rightly condemning that as asking people to do something illegal, but I don't want folks to, to think that that extends to this perfectly legitimate practice of, you know, dealing with the lost ballot. And I'm worried that that, is, that statement was kind of intended to make people feel like they don't have that choice. And they do have that choice. It is not the same thing as casting two votes, you know, just trying to see if it works. It's it's absolutely a legitimate choice that people have if something goes wrong. Everyone has the right to cast one valid vote.
0: And that brings me to my next question, um, is, is that how does... Disinformation, distrust, and cynicism work as voter suppression.
2: Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. It works. <laughs> <laughs> it works very well.
0: Uh, but.
2: well so so there, are, there are three things that are going on. You know, there's misinformation, which is well-intentioned, but sometimes leads people astray by giving information that, you know, may be correct in one state, but it's not correct in another. And that can cause a lot of confusion and upset. Um, like there was a, a post that went around a few weeks ago about how you can get around the mail delays, which, you know, totally well-intentioned, but it wasn't completely accurate for Missouri because we have some nuances there. So those are the kind of things that I find the most worrisome because they're the most likely to be shared by trusted people. Um, You know, it seems it it is sort of, it's legitimate for someplace else, not for your state. People share it well in well-intentioned ways and then folks get confused. So that is, you know, a, a real problem. Disinformation is, you know, deceit, lies, generating controversies, making people distrust the system. And, you know, and that is a a whole problem in itself. But the other area that I think is like really insidious is the manipulation. And that is where not only are controversies and wedge issues, like amplified by bots and trolls, but it's also situations where manipulative accounts suck people in, especially on social media, they suck people in with content that appeals to various demographics, you know, that's inspiring, that's, you know, that's, that makes them feel good. And and it creates trust between the social media user and that account. And then, you know, Every so often that account will start dropping posts like, you know, it's, you know, take your power back, you know, don't participate in a system that doesn't work for you, you know, don't vote. And when a a person has already kind of created a trust relationship with that account, you know, messages like that take root so that was one way in which the internet research agency or a russian operation managed to influence voters not to vote in 2016 it was very successful and they're still out there doing that and so people need to be very cognizant of of any messages that they receive that tell them not to vote or that their vote doesn't matter or that you know they shouldn't vote for whatever reason because the people putting out those messages, have an agenda, and that agenda does not include the best interests of the voters. So anybody ever tells you not to vote, they're not thinking about you. They are trying to serve another agenda, you know, for, you know, for the love of all that's holy, your vote matters. Go vote.
1: Right. And I agree 100% with what she said. Um, we're, We're going to see more and more and more of that over the next few weeks. So um, and even afterwards, I think even after the election, we'll continue to see certain kinds of things. So,
0: I always come back to the statement that um, if, your, if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't work so hard to keep you from voting. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> go vote. Before we uh, close out the program today, um, any contact information you want to give out for folks for either participating in, in uh, volunteering or contacting your organizations or anything along those lines?
2: Well, I'd like to give out the election protection sign-up information, which is really important. And it's protectthevote.net. So protectthevote, all one word, .net. That's how you sign up for election protection volunteering, whether you're a lawyer or, or want to be a poll monitor or a social media monitor. Please do that. It's so important. Um, we need folks on the ground everywhere this November, and um, we need folks online everywhere starting pretty soon to make sure that, you know, everything goes well in November, you know, un, un, untroubled by, you know, disinformation, misinformation, and manipulation that occurs before then. So please sign
0: up. Okay, thank you. I want to thank my guest today, Jennifer Lohman of the St. Louis Area Voter Protection Coalition and Dr. Gina McClendon, the Director of Voter Access and Engagement and the Financial Capability and Asset Building Initiatives at the Center for Social Development in the Brown School at Washington University. To learn more about MCU, go to Metropolitan Congregations United's website at mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. And that's also where you find out how you can participate with us in our events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you have been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.